Second reading is found in 1 Samuel, chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathane, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zulf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Pinnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I, I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and, dis and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, 
After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Well, this morning we're beginning a new series in this book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to be following through the first section of 1 Samuel for the next couple of months. And I encourage you to take this opportunity to really get familiar with this part of the Bible. It's a wonderful um, part of God's Word, and it has a lot to teach us, and also a pretty engaging story along the way. Uh, One of the ways you can do that is by reading it yourself at home. Another one, though, as I regularly say, is that if you bring your Bible along with you to church each week, then it really does familiarise you as we are engaging with it. You get to see where things are in your particular printed Bible, and then as you go home and read it again, you've got that familiarity growing. Um, And so I encourage you to bring along your own Bible as we get into it together. Um, Let's pray as we come to reflect a bit more on this part of God's Word. Heavenly Father, you do do tell us that all scripture is breathed out by you, that it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly built up and equipped for every good work. And Father, we pray that that is true of this morning's word that you have given us. And we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good leadership is something that I suspect we often take for granted, particularly, I think, when things are going reasonably well. I remember just back a few years when the Prime Minister of Australia was changing so often, it was hard to keep up with who the Prime Minister was on any given day. I remember there was, there was coups, there were backroom party dealings, and so you turn on the news and all of a sudden we had a different Prime Minister. We, what did we have? We had, we had John, Kevin, Julia, Kevin again, Tony, Malcolm, and then Scott. Seven different prime ministers in 10 years. And in, in fact, two of those years, we had four different prime ministers. And I remember genuinely having trouble remembering who the prime minister was during particularly that time when things were changing quite quickly. And as I said, you kind of had to check the news each day to see if anything had changed. And I suspect that for many of us, we kind of saw that as a bit of a joke, a bit of a farce, maybe even an embarrassment. But you know, that kind of thing is far less funny in places like Myanmar at the moment, right? Where the issues of national leadership are throwing the country into genuine crisis, where blood is being spilled in the streets. Or even in America with their recent presidential elections, you know, a country that prides itself 
in its democracy, yet with so much uncertainty around, around the changing of their national leadership and their new president. There was division, there's deep-seated distrust, even violence again. We might take good leadership for granted, but it matters when it goes wrong or when it's not there. And this issue of leadership brings us to the book of 1 Samuel, a book where we discover that Israel seems to be in a crisis of leadership. Now, just to give us a bit of context, the book of 1 Samuel takes us back about 3,000 years to, to around 1050 BC. And in the story of Israel's history, 1 Samuel follows directly from the book of Judges. And we're probably most familiar with the, the book of Judges' most famous character, Samson, that kind of muscle-bound hothead whose kind of life story would make for a good movie plot, if a tragic one. And the book of Judges, directly before Samuel, ends with its final verse and kind of summarising the situation. It says this, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Israel had no king, there was no permanent political leadership, and everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And so as we finish Judges with, that, with those words and we begin 1 Samuel, we begin with the question, is Israel experiencing a crisis of leadership? And if that's the case, what will God do about that? Does God care about his people? who've been kind of limping from one leader to another for the last 200 years, from one crisis to another. It's hardly been the great blessing and prosperity that God promised when he brought them into this land 200 years earlier. Does God care about this situation? And if so, what will he do about it? Particularly this question of leadership at the national level. So that's the kind of background question that we be, that we bring to the start of this book. And with that question in mind, 1 Samuel begins with some familiar sounding words. Familiar, that is, if we've just been reading the book of Judges, because the book of Samuel begins with the exact same words, with the same situation that the story of Samson begins with. So the story of Samson, that kind of that muscle-bound hero, begins in, in Judges chapter 13 with the words, there was a certain man from some particular town in Israel, from some particular family line in Israel. And now in 1 Samuel, it begins in exactly the same way. Let me read from verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of all those other people whose names are hard to pronounce, Verse 2, he had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. So Samson, the mother of a certain man from some certain place with a barren mother, and now this story is being introduced in exactly the same way. And so already, as the story begins, we are led to expect that this could be the beginning of something significant that God is about to do something that might address this apparent situation of Israel in crisis, this crisis of leadership. But no sooner are we introduced to this certain man and his childless wife, Hannah, than our attention is kind of drawn away from this 
big national level crisis to these issues of national significance and down to this small but deeply personal issue of one woman's pain. And so we move, as I said, from national leadership, Israel in crisis at a national level, to one particular crisis in Israel at a far more personal level. And our focus is drawn down to this barren wife of a certain man of no particular significance, and we are drawn into this deeply personal and painful story. It's a story of people in every generation, even still today. And it is deeply personal and painful. But it's hardly a story of national significance, or so it seems. And we can't help but sympathise, can we, and be drawn to this woman, Hannah. Her personal pain of childlessness is made all the worse because it's rubbed in her face by her husband's other wife, Peninnah. And of course, this raises that question of polygamy for us that, that kind of comes up. And, and we're not going to be able to deal with all of those questions now, but I thought I'd just discuss it briefly for a moment because the Bible tells us that from the very beginning, God made us male and female and that the two should become one flesh. And Jesus reiterates this exact same thing, that the two, male and female, should become one flesh. That is God's intention for marriage. And so it's not surprising that even though polygamy is still legal in around 50 countries still today, in every country around the world where Christianity begins to have a significant influence on the culture, polygamy almost invariably dies out. But we do see examples of it in the Bible, don't we? Particularly in the Old Testament. And we expect to see some kind of commentary, some kind of editor's note that says there was polygamy here, and by the way, that was a bad thing. But we don't get that. And so we wonder, is the Bible condoning this polygamy? But what we need to remember is that biblical narrative, which is what this is, is not just a list of do's and don'ts, or even kind of moral example stories. Narrative describes what happened without always giving explicit kind of editorial verdict or commentary on the situation, whether it was good or bad. Instead, what we get is we, we let narrative tell its story and often the verdict becomes clear as the narrative plays itself out. And what we often discover is exactly the kind of thing that we see here when it comes to polygamy. The bitterness and rivalry, the provoking and pain in this example of polygamy is really just a small taste of the absolutely terrible and destructive consequences that we're going to see later in the story of Samuel, particularly with King David's polygamous marriages. And so in many ways, that provides the verdict for us that this is not a good thing. But let's return to our story and to Hannah's situation. And as I said, our focus on this chapter is at least temporarily drawn away from those matters of national significance as we are drawn into Hannah's grief. And you see how painful it is for Hannah? You know, she, she can't even eat. That's how difficult this is for her. And we're left with the question that in the midst of all that's going on at the national level, does God care about her, about Hannah, this one childless woman? And with that 
question in mind, I can't help but notice that in verses 5 and 6, twice we are told the reason for why Hannah has no children. It simply says, because the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb. This was the Lord's doing. And that's particularly brought to our attention in Hannah's situation. But the fact is that these words speak a truth that is behind every situation and every circumstance in your life and mine. Whether good or bad as we see it, whether pleasant or painful, God is at work. God is sovereign and in control of all of them. Which, of course, raises all kinds of questions and issues for us. But the truth of this is particularly being drawn to our attention twice in this passage. And I want to suggest that Hannah's response to this situation shows us the right kind of response to this kind of situation. That is, how should we respond when we know that God is at work even in situations that we don't like, that are difficult or painful? And before we consider what Hannah does, I want to consider some possible alternatives to how we might respond. And I guess the most obvious one is resentment, right? And maybe you can identify with this. If God is in control of everything and this bad thing is happening to me, then I don't like God very much. God has done this to me and so I resent him for it. And perhaps even I don't want anything to do with him. But that's actually not where Hannah's faith in a sovereign God leads her. Another possible alternative is passive acceptance, resignation, fatalism, you might call it. That is, if I know that this is God's doing, then why not just throw my hands in the air and say, well, what will be, will be. There's nothing I can do about it. God is in control, so just accept it and deal with it. And perhaps you can hear a certain piety in that. And maybe this is what we tend to do in this situation. I mean, isn't that what trusting God looks like? But again, that's not where Hannah's faith leads her. And it's not what we are told that trusting a sovereign God looks like in situations like this. Instead, for Hannah... Her faith in a sovereign God is personal. It's not some abstract theological idea or as if God is some impersonal force, you know, like in Star Wars, may the force be with you, but the force doesn't really care about you, or like in Hinduism. Hannah trusts in a personal sovereign God. And so what I want us to notice is that as Hannah prays, she prays, on the basis of what she knows God is like. She prays for him to act in her life in ways that she knows he has already acted before. And in particular, when God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And I want to listen to what we hear at that time when God rescued Israel. So I'm going to read, can you see that? I'm going to read these verses from Exodus chapter 2. This is when Israel were in Egypt. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. 
God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on Israel and was concerned about them. God looked on Israel in their misery. He remembered them and he was concerned for them. He cared. And now these words of Hannah's prayer call on God to act in that same way for her now. And so have a look for these same words in verse 10 of of 1 Samuel 1. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. You hear that? Look on me in my misery, Lord. Remember me, Lord. Those are the exact same words that describe how God did act for Israel those many years earlier. God looked, God remembered, God cared. And this is what God's faith, sorry, Hannah's faith in a sovereign God is based on. She knows what he is like. He has shown that he cares about the misery of his people. And so her cry of faith echoes those words, look, Lord, remember, Lord. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you might remember when we did that topical series and we looked at faith and what faith is, that faith looks back to see the character of God, what he is like, so that we can come to this God in trust for those things that we don't know. That's what Hannah is doing. She doesn't know how God will answer her prayer or what is going on in the situation in her life. But she does know the God she prays to. He does look on our misery. He does remember us in those situations. He does care about the big issues of national significance as well as the deeply personal issue of one woman's grief. And so she casts her anxieties on him, knowing that he cares for her. That's what she says she's doing when she's talking to the priest Eli in verse 16. She says, I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. This is a prayer of faith in a sovereign God who cares. In her anguish and grief, her anxiety, she brings her request to God because she knows that he is a God who cares And you know what strikes me is that in verse 18, she hasn't yet received an answer to her prayer. But things have changed because she has changed. Let me read from verse 18. Then she went on her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. We know that prayer changes things, real things Because God does hear our prayers and he does act. And we're going to see in a moment what God did in this situation. But before Hannah's prayer changed things out there in in the reality of the world, it firstly changed things in here for her, in her heart. This is not prayer as a psychological crutch to help us deal with the difficulties of life. It is prayer that brings us humbly to the God who cares that helps us to acknowledge that while we are not in control, God is. 
and so that we trust even more in this God who is sovereign in our lives. Because the God who is at work in all things, Romans 8 tells us, works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We may not know what that good looks like, but we do know the God who does know. We do know the God who is sovereignly in control of these situations. Now, just recently, I've been speaking to someone who is in a situation of significant pain and grief. And as I speak to this person, and in fact, often as I speak to people in these kinds of situations, and even in my own, what we want to know is why, right? That's the question that we come to. Why is this happening? Why is God doing this? And what can I do to change it? And, you know, I long to be able to give them an answer in that situation. And it can feel quite powerless to not be able to give a definitive answer. We don't know most of the time. But that doesn't mean that we have to just resort to passive acceptance or resentment. Because what we can do is we can throw ourselves to trust in the God who does know, the God who does care. And that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to cast our anxieties on him, our anguish, our pain, our grief, knowing that he does care for us. And that's exactly what Hannah has done. And then in verse 19, we get to see how God responded to Hannah's prayer. Have a look at verse 19. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. Exactly what Hannah asked him to do. And he did it. And so we read in verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. This is a wonderful end to a deeply personal story of a God who does see. A God who does remember us in our misery. He does care. This is the character of the God we trust. The Lord remembered Hannah and gave her a son, Samuel. And as we hear his name Samuel, this is where we also begin to see that this story is so much more than just a story of one woman's misery and God's care for her, although it is that. Because this is where we step back into the broader issue of Israel and the leadership crisis they are facing. Because this son, Samuel, that is born to Hannah is the Samuel who the book is named after and who becomes a key figure in the unfolding story of God's work in this next stage of Israel's history. He becomes part of God's answer to this apparent leadership crisis that Israel seems to be facing. And so this is not just a story of Hannah as an example for us, that if we pray earnestly enough, sincerely enough, or if we are miserable enough in our anguish, or if we make a remarkable vow, as Hannah did, that God will always give us what we ask for. It's a story about God, that God does look, that he does remember us, that he does care. God cared for Hannah 
in her misery in a wonderful and special way. But that care points to something bigger. What God did in his care for Hannah turns out to be actually God's care for Israel and the troubles they are facing as a nation. But you know, what a remarkable way to begin this story about the big leadership crisis of Israel with a miserable and otherwise insignificant woman from a family that you've never heard of to see that in the midst of that big national issue, God cared for her. That God's care on the big picture level also lands down in the very personal care of one otherwise forgettable woman in her pain. And so if we follow the story of this miraculous birth of this woman's son Samuel and his role in the rise of the kings of Israel, 1,000 years later we discover another barren and otherwise forgettable woman named Elizabeth and the miraculous birth of her son John. Like Samuel, John was a prophet of God who God sent to turn people's hearts back to him and ultimately to prepare the way for the king that we really needed. See, Israel's problem was not fundamentally that they needed a military or political leader who could unite them and fight their battles for them, which is what they wanted, which is what they asked for. Their problem was that their heart was turned away from the Lord which is the problem of the whole world. And God has seen that problem. And God has remembered us in that problem. And God cares for us in that. And he sent his son to deal with that very issue for us. God cares for us at this most significant level possible. And it affects us at the very core of our being and has eternal significance. And if God cares for us at this biggest level, then we can know that God also cares for us in the very personal ways for each one of us. And so, like Hannah, we can cast our anxieties on him, knowing that he cares for us. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, you do know us. You know what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, we can often wonder what is going on because we don't know. Father, please spare us from resentment or even passive resignation. Instead, Father, help us to cast our anxieties on you, knowing that you care for us. Help us to look to the ways that you have remembered us in the past and particularly how you have sent your son Jesus to deal with our biggest problem ever. And help us therefore to trust that you do care for us in all things, both big and small. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.